Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. We're very excited about the EHS Daily Advisor's upcoming 2019 Safety Summit, and we hope you are, too. Our latest annual event promises a wide variety of topics and speakers covering all safety aspects from compliance to culture. And among the issues we'll be covering is one that is a constant concern for EHS professionals, no matter their industry or company size. Effective, engaging safety training. So in a preview of what to expect, we're talking today with an expert safety trainer. She's known as the safety training ninja, in fact, about how to approach the common challenges associated with boosting and maintaining employee engagement with safety training. Joining us today on EHS on Tap is Regina McMichael, president of the Learning Factory and a world-renowned speaker with 28 years of experience as a safety expert. In addition to leading a pre-conference session at Safety Summit entitled How to Be a Safety Training Ninja, Regina will also be delivering the conference's opening keynote, The Wife Left Behind, The Making of a Safety Professional, which will describe how her journey in safety began when her husband fell to his death while employed as a roofer. Regina's work as a speaker and trainer today shows safety professionals how to transform safety from a dry, boring compliance issue into a living, breathing, vitally important human issue that can save lives. Now in today's podcast, she'll be talking with us about how this shift in perspective can help make safety training more engaging for employees. So Regina, thank you so much for joining us today on EHS on Tap. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Now, the story you will tell in your opening keynote highlights the human side of safety, and it seems that's becoming a greater focus overall for safety professionals as the industry approaches safety culture with the same level of importance as legal compliance obligations. Now, how can safety professionals strike a healthy balance there, keeping up with compliance obligations while also fostering a strong culture of safety? Well, to be honest, I think that if we start to care about people in a greater way, the mm-hmm. compliance issues, they're going to fall into place. The, the idea of a, a process-driven program where we've got lots of policies and procedures and tons of details, you know, they, they have their place. But we've also seen historically that, that massive safety management systems and written processes and procedures haven't always resulted in the, you know, the ending of, uh, of hazards the ending of, of taking of lives. And so the question is, what else can we do and what else are we missing as part of our safety process? And that's where I think that compassion and humanity need to come into play. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk to your folks and when I'm doing the, the keynote, I'm going to talk a lot about love and about hugs because mm-hmm. I believe that if we don't remember that it's human beings that we're working with, it's regular people who have families who are trying to make a living and pay their rent or feed their, their dogs or their children or whatever, mm-hmm. that if we don't remember that part of it and we get to a, little, a little too mechanical in our processes, we, we miss the greater opportunity. Right. I think, um, sadly, there's been a lot of safety professionals who were mentored by people who historically went for that very rigid and compliance-based approach. And I've, I've worked with people of all ages and from all over the world, and you know, if you're mentored that way originally, a lot of folks don't realize that there's another way to tackle the safety profession and to, to tackle some of the challenges that we have. And so, you know, I, my, my testimony is that if we've got more love and more caring and more 
positive treatment of people and remembering that it's about humanity first and foremost, that we're going to be able to create those stronger cultures. Mm -hmm. A compliance-driven program just doesn't build the culture we need to take care of each other. Right. So, so clearly you have a particular focus on training in particular as the, uh, as the safety training ninja. Now, um, some mandatory compliance training has a reputation for being, well, boring. <laughs> so how, how can safety pros bust this stereotype and engage employees while still conveying the necessary information in a way so that it's retained and put to use by workers in the field? Well, the number one thing that you have to remember, and this is something I teach whenever I teach any course, mm -hmm. and that is when you're up there training, it is not about you, the trainer. Right. It is about the learner. It is about the people sitting in the audience there to learn something. We've got to remember that the person standing up at the front of the room, we've all been there. We've been in that training class where that person reads the information on the slides or they try to convince you how smart they are because they know tons and tons of information and they feel the need to share every bit of it with you, mm -hmm. even if that's not exactly what the people need in order to learn. Right. So if we can remember first and foremost that it is always, always about the learner. And then when we go back and try to validate the training, and, and we can talk about that part a little bit later, but mm -hmm. when we go back to validate, you know, a lot of times we're like, well, the worker didn't pay attention, but the worker, you know, the worker didn't listen, he didn't do what I taught them. We have to look at ourselves and say, did we create an environment where that worker truly was able to learn? Because if we are reading OSHA regulations off of a screen, we have not done our job. We're right. not doing the best we can. And, and I'm empathetic to the safety trainer out there. I, I have been one. I am one right now. I realize there is so much other work we have to do every day. And, you know, your boss or somebody else shows up and says, hey, we got to do this new thing and you need to do it tomorrow. Right. You don't get time to prep. You don't get time to do your research. You don't have time to make it exciting and interesting like you would uh, in another circumstance. And so as a result, you're often forced to deliver not so awesome training. Mm. And so one of the challenges the profession has to, to kind of struggle with and, and, and move towards success with is that we have to explain to the people who, who determine how much time and money we have to get this done that bad training can kill. And right. If we get serious about the discussion, I'm not talking about death by PowerPoint. I'm talking about <laughs> we don't take the time to truly train them on how to do the work safely, how to have the right safety mindset, how to truly understand how to operate the equipment or the machinery or to not bypass the guards or whatever it is we're trying to teach them. If we don't do that well, they, they can get hurt, they could die. Right. And we have to look at it that way and not that safety training is just another thing on the list to check off. Mm. But instead, it's a real opportunity to make a shift in behavior and a shift in knowledge that can lead to not only safe behavior, but better production, better quality, and better workforce overall. Mm. So, no serious stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'm you know, in this whole uh, process of engaging with employees, you know, there's there's a wide variety of, of training techniques that people hear about and delivery methods out there from the classroom to webinars to e-learning. Plus, you know, we hear things like uh, words like chunking and micro-learning when people are talking about training innovations. And the list seems to get longer every day, basically. So how can safety managers and trainers evaluate their specific workforce and identify the right training path for their employees? 
it, you know, it's about knowing your audience. Mm-hmm. And it's actually because, you know, at the Safety Training Ninja, it's a book now. Because people said, hey, you know, we can't learn everything you need to tell us all in one day. So, uh, <laughs> so I put together a book that's now available. And there's a whole chapter just on the analysis stage. Mm-hmm. Because training development and, and safety training development should be part of an actual process. And the process that I introduce a lot of folks to is called the ADDI model, which is analyze, design, develop, implement, and evaluate. And this model isn't for safety specifically. It is from the learning community. It is from that world and has been used for years and perfected by the military and and many others out there. Mm -hmm. And and the idea is is that just like many of the other processes, we follow uh, PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act for, for safety, we need to follow the process for training development. Mm-hmm. If we get that baseline down accurately, then some of that other stuff is, is going to make sense. But first we have to acknowledge that there's a systematic approach that has a value for what our needs are. Because if, if we're looking and we're saying, well, how do I know how to train our people? You know, the first thing you have to say is, is what do they know? And what do they need to know? Or what are they doing? And what do they need to know? do, what is that knowledge gap? And that's our analysis phase. Mm. And that knowledge gap is what we're trying to fill. Right. And, and one of the beautiful things about doing these analysis and spending some upfront time doing it is if you determine that your workforce already knows half of what you are going to train them on because you trained them on it last year, mm. then you know, if there's no indication that they don't possess that knowledge, you don't need to train them again. Right. You, know, you look at the analysis and you say, okay, here it is. You know, unless there's a particular regulation that says, you know, annual training, X number of hours, something like that, and and I've got tricks for that as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, unless there's something very specific that says it must be this long and they must sit there for this amount of time, there's so many other options available. But it's born out of first knowing what do they need to know versus what do they know now or what do they need to do? What's the behavioral change or the knowledge change you're trying to impact with that safety training? Mm-hmm. And if you look at just that bit of information, and it could be huge. If it's a new regulation, yeah, there can be things that we've got to know. Mm-hmm. But the analysis allows us to focus just on what content we need and know more. Mm. And the beauty of it is, is if you now find out, hey, you know, my, my folks are, are pretty darn good at this particular topic. They just need to know a little bit more over here. And now your training isn't as long, which everyone's going to love you for that. <laughs> you know? yep. It allows you to focus on just what you need to know. You know, the concept of chunking, for example, chunking is based on the idea that as, as human beings, we can only keep so much stuff in kind of the front memory. Right. And, you know, if you want to test this theory, you know, have 10 things at the grocery store that you need to get and try to get them without a list. Mm. You're, you're not going to remember all 10. Yeah, have them there. Chunk them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all like, oh, crud. You walk out the door and you're like, I don't have everything. Right. If you remember, there's three things in produce and four items in frozen food and, and, and three things in, in snack foods or you know, probably ten things in snack foods. But you know, the idea is if you break them up, if you chunk them into categories or if you make them some sort of, uh, of a process or a way to remember, you know, in, the, in the chunking world, the other, the other idea that is, is uh, parallel to it is mnemonic devices. Mm. And that's where we take unrelated items and we make them make sense together. The greatest example that resonates in the United States is, you know, what are the names of the Great Lakes? Yeah. Oh, it's homes, cool. right? There you go. Yep. And, and I'll tell you what, if I didn't have homes, I wouldn't be able to remember what the Great Lakes are, but I will know them for the rest of my life because of that memory tool. 
So we can, we can create that. What if we created memory tools for your six-step process for entering a confined space? And if you have a 26-step process for the entering a confined space, you can't, you can't teach people well enough so that they can memorize those 26 steps. Right. Instead, what if we broke it up into five sets of five plus one, or you know, whatever the appropriate approach is? The idea is is that you know there's different ways that we can deliver the learning. One of the things you do is you take that complex set of, of, of processes, you know, like confined space or walkout tago that are so life life important, mm-hmm. and say, okay, folks, instead of me telling you what the chunked material is, why don't you tell me what it is, and actually have the learner develop the chunking themselves. Mm. One, they're a part of it. Two, it's so much better than a lecture. Three, they're going to remember it because they did it themselves. Right. Those are the types of tools that we can use in our training workplace that, okay, is it easier than, than reading what's on the screen? Probably not. But is it more effective? Is it more desirable for your, for your learners? Is it more likely to stick with them long term? And oh, by the way, they might have done part of your job for you. That's an awesome bonus. <laughs> so all of those things together are the ways that we can start looking at things differently. Because people are like, well, you know, confined space is very important. It's a complex thing. I'm going to have to teach one step at a time. Mm-hmm. But there are other ways we can do it to where it will stick with our learners beyond just sitting there and saying, step one, do this. Step two, do this. So, and then micro-learning is a, a concept, and I'll just pick the two you brought up and, and maybe throw in some more, but yeah, sure. micro-learning is this idea that in our world today, we're very fast-paced, even, you know, and, and people like to try to make distinctions about age groups and stereotypes and stuff like that, but, mm-hmm. you know, I know plenty of people in a variety of age groups that watch YouTube videos to learn how to do things, mm-hmm. and I know, I know plenty of people in the younger age that are, are you know, anti-social media and anti um, equipment and things like that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not unique to any particular age group. But the idea that a little tiny bit of learning, micro-learning, mm-hmm. is probably going to stay with someone better than eight hours of lecture in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I advocate to people, I'm like, you know, hey, you want to teach somebody how to use a new piece of equipment, go out there and film them with your phone of them actually doing what they're supposed to do, you know, film them doing it the right way, and make it just a little clip. And then folks are like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, that's okay. You can find people in your workforce that know how to do that. Bring them in, make them a part of the learning development. Now you've got another person on your team, but you also have an advocate for the learning, because if they helped create it, they're going to be much more likely to tell others about it and go, hey, I, I made that. You know, look at this video I made on how to operate this piece of equipment safely. Hmm. So it has double value other than just here is the training. But there's, there's so many tools that we can use other than lecture to involve people in the training and to pull them in so that it sticks and that they actually understand it and can make those behavior or knowledge changes we're looking for. That's great. So uh, right at the beginning of your uh, your last uh, the last question that you answered, you brought up an acronym real quick you know, uh, about how to analyze. Could you mind repeating that again? Yeah, so it's called Addy, and you can Google Addy, and you're going to be able to find tons of information on it, or you could get my book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that, that Addy stands for Analyze, Design, Develop, Implement, and Evaluate. So oh. it's a five-step process, and it's a circle. You just keep going around and around and make your training better and better. 
But it's the idea of first, you, you got to know who your audience is and why you need to deliver this training, whether it's new or refresher or revision of something you've done in the past. And then how do you design it so that it's awesome and so that they actually learn? What are you going to do other than a lecture? And then what information are you going to include so that you know you're just giving them exactly what they need, nothing more, but nothing less. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you go and deliver it, and then you figure out if it works. And uh, the idea is, is that circular process, you keep going back to it, then you can deliver one class and, and evaluate it and go, okay, that didn't go the way I want it. <laughs> you, know, you go back to it, you figure out what you need to fix, and then you improve it. You know, I, I deliver materials for clients, and, and we might develop the program, we deliver it the first time, and you know, then I sit down with the client, and we do a little shredding and a little bit of changing, then we do it again, and then we make some more edits. And quite honestly, by the time we're done delivering it 15 or 20 times, it, it, it's still the same guts, but it continues to get, it, to get improved as we deliver it, and we see opportunities based on feedback and on interaction from the classroom, we can continue to improve the product as we go along. And mm -hmm. a lot of folks, you know, they've spent a lot of time developing a PowerPoint, they're like, you know, I spent, spent a lot of hours putting this together, this is it. <laughs> you know, that limits, yeah, that limits how great we can be. And, and again, I understand the time constraints and all those things, but I promise if you do more upfront work, it gets easier on the backside and it will stick better, which is ultimately what we're looking for. That's great. So, in your experience, is is there a common thread of successful safety training? Like, and this common thread will remain relevant and important no matter what sort of new innovations or techniques might disrupt the training space. You know, it, it, it's like we prep this up. It is the ADDIE model. The mm. common thread is ADDIE. Now, there's other models out there, and I'm not saying don't use the other ones. I'm saying ADDIE is that base that we built from. And if you want to start to explore what the other models are after you've got that baseline down, absolutely go for it. Some of them are more rapid development and things like that. But I'm a big believer that we need to know our base. Right. We need to get good at the baseline. And then we can start to get a little bit more creative. But that, that common thread is understanding your audience, designing and developing a program that works for them, specifically for them, and then delivering it in a manner so that the training will stick with them, and then looking back at ourselves and saying what worked and what didn't. And it doesn't matter if it's online training, if it's e-learning, if it's a video, if it's classroom-based, if it's in the field next door to a trench. All of those things still need to get considered. It could be a five-minute toolbox talk, but you still got to know who your audience is. Right. You still don't want to just read the piece of paper to them. You want to engage them and involve them. So the ADDIE model, it doesn't matter if it's a short um, application of training or if it's an all-day program or if it's a week-long program, that common thread flows no matter what you're trying to do. It's just a matter of the depth in which you go into it. That's great. So you mentioned just a little while ago, you know, looking back and seeing how you did. So how can safety managers measure the effectiveness of their training, compliance, and cultural programs, what data should they really be focused on? Oh, that's where the fun really starts. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's so great. Historically, in, I know, right? yep. so historically, in the profession, the safety profession, we look at those lagging indicators. Mm. You know, let's say, let's say we go out and we do some training on ladders inside of a factory or something like that. Yep. And then, you know, a, a year goes by and all of our ladder incidents have dropped. Oh, gosh, we're awesome with ladders now. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's funny is, is that the training people, they're going to say, that was us. And the supervisors yep. are going to say, no, it was us. And purchasing is going to say, no, we got new ladders, it was us. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody's going to want a piece of piece of that success. So it can be very challenging to prove training fixed the problem. Mm. But what you can do is you can look for validation that training has stuck, that it's being used, that you know the, the, the change in behavior, attitude, whatever that you were looking for, you can validate that that's happening and that is certainly better to lay claim to than a reduction in losses because everybody's going to want a piece of that. Mm. A simple example would be, you know, you've conducted a training class on, we'll use ladders again, on ladders. Mm. And what you do is you would develop a tool for your supervisors that would help them evaluate whether the workers are utilizing the new skills or knowledge that you train them on. So you would put together a document or if you're an electronic-based company, you know, maybe it's a quick little checklist on an iPad, whatever it is. But you, would, you, the trainer, would develop this for the supervisor so that they could do an evaluation and say, hey, yeah, you know, he's using his three-point connection, and he's making sure that he doesn't use a step ladder as an extension ladder, and he's, he's doing all the things that we wanted him to do. Hmm. You give them that evaluation tool, but you've got to make it really easy for the supervisors to do it. And you need to make sure that it doesn't turn into an audit. Mm. Don't go out, you know. Don't go out there and say, "All right, guys, let me see you use the ladder so I can confirm all this stuff." <laughs> right. Just watch. Just informal. Just watch your team doing their job and compare it against the list of what you expect from them post training, mm. and then make it really easy for the supervisors to give you that information. If you're a paper-based company, that's not so easy. It's not so fun. Hmm. You know, if you've got a system and you've got people on staff that can, can help you combine all that data and that evaluation so that you know it's sticking, even if you don't have any of those things, even anecdotal evaluations where you're going, yeah, yeah, these, these men and women are doing their jobs better and safer as a result of the training they went to last week, last month, six months ago, whatever, whatever system you want to evaluate with. But that's one of the ways that you can look back and see your effectiveness. The lagging indicators are great, but they have their limitations because they, they may or may not have a relationship to the training. It could be luck, you know. Hey, we're safer this year than last year. They have nothing to do with the training. Right. And, and you know, just because, you know, just like it's like, hey, how did we have so many accidents? We train them all. Well, you know, there might not be a relationship to those if we're not doing some active measurement. But the idea of we gave them a test before and we gave them a test after, well, that test afterwards, it only measures what they know at that point in time. Mm. So it's pretty limiting. What you really want to know is, are you getting that change in knowledge or behavior gap that you thought about during the analysis stage? And then how do you confirm that that change not only happens, but then it stays happening, that it sticks afterwards? Hmm. So um, let's take a... a quick step back and we'll take a broader view here about just safety in general. Is is there anything that worries you or frustrates you about what you're seeing today when it comes to the state of safety at organizations? Or or on the flip side, is there anything you're seeing today in safety that gives you great optimism? Well, let's start with the optimism because that's always where we should go first, right? Do yeah, absolutely. 
Sure. You know, what I'm seeing is, is as I speak to larger and larger audiences at a greater frequency, is the number of safety professionals, even part-time or folks who don't even have safety in their title but have safety responsibilities, these folks are coming to me and they're like, we were, you know, they're looking for something other than checklists and the law says so, so you've got to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're craving this because, you know, to be honest, if, if compliance worked, if yelling at people and pointing to regulations worked, we wouldn't, there wouldn't be any jobs for us anymore because they wouldn't need us. Right. You know, again, a simple example, you know, do you drive the speed limit because you just passed a police officer on the side of the road <laughs> or because you think driving the speed limit is what you really want to do? And so, so the idea that, you know, if we just say the law a little bit louder, it's somehow going to make it, you know, more effective or something. So, you know, so many people come to me and they're like, you know, what, what are the alternatives? And the alternative is, is to behave in a world where humanity comes first. Mm. You know, when we speak to people, how do we talk to them? How do we communicate in a way that they know that it's not about the law? It's about making sure they go home alive and well, and they see whoever it is, whether it's a dog or their spouse or their children, who, whatever it is that they want to go home safe for, and that they have to feel that connection to the people that they work with. We're kind of in a disconnected society right now, mm-hmm. and, it, and it doesn't—it doesn't feel like it's going to get a lot better. Right. What I feel, you know, my position is, is that we've got to reestablish that human and humane connection to the people that we work with. And mm. I, I work with some clients that are so um, uh, forward in their thinking about caring for their people, and I can see real results because they're like, no, we, we actually want them to be home alive, and we want to make sure that they know that, and we, we take time every day. You know, the safety people who get in the field, who get out of their seats and, and head to the, to the, to the uh, shop floor or out onto the construction site or into the cab of a truck or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you know, those folks who connect with the humans is, is what I, I see more of people looking for that because they're going, you know what, the, the way I was taught or the way I was mentored, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the beauty is I think the message um, that people are looking to hear, both workers and, and safety people, is that we have to make that human connection. And we've got to take a little bit of an emotional risk about being authentic mm. and about being open and honest so that the people around us can trust us when we say, you know, I don't want you to do that and I don't really care that the law says it or doesn't say it. I care because I want you to be safe. Right. We want you to do this. It's much more than the law requires, for example. We want you to do it because we think it's the right way to keep you safe and sound so you can get home alive tonight. And having that compassionate conversation, you know, as opposed to where does it say that in the book, mm-hmm. you, know, it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take you very long to realize, you know, one way just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to deliver it as a safety person. It's like, I don't like being that person. Uh-huh. So we have, to have, we have to have that humanity side. And, and I have noticed that, that, that every, you know, every time I speak, the, every next audience that I have an opportunity to connect with, you know, more, and more and more people come up and they go, I, I want to learn more about this and I want to be open to the idea that maybe I wasn't behaving the very best way. I wasn't being the best me I could be to take care of my people. So my optimism is, is quite high mm. because I continue to see people reach for those, um, those ideals. And I get a lot of connections afterwards where people are like, 
you know, I went out and I just, I just said, hey, you know, I just started talking to him and it wasn't about safety and I, I developed that relationship and now I'm going to build from there. Mm. Um, I, had a, I had a gentleman who said, you know, they'd had a serious accident, OSHA came in, they developed all of these policies, they had to do all this stuff. It was, you know, what was required legally and it was necessary to put those policies and procedures in place. But he said, I'm concerned because I'm worried that everyone's going to think this is all that drives us. You know, and I said to him, I said, now what you got to do is, is you're going to do something equally as proactive from the humanity side. Mm. Yeah, you wrote the policies. Yeah, OSHA showed up. That, that all happened. We can't change that. But what are you going to do tomorrow so that your people know that that's not what's driving your safety initiative? You know, and so I gave him some suggestions on things that he could do just to kind of reconnect with the human side of his workforce. And I was like, you know, just try to make that get back in there and make that the memory they have more than the experience of the accident and, and of the OSHA inspection and your reaction to it, which was a whole bunch of policies and procedures. Right. So, you know, it's that idea that we can change the perspective, but the safety people, the, the professionals, we have to be the one to lead that. We can't expect the workforce to, to just you know, ask us, you know, do you care about us and, you know, give us more love, we have to make that first step ourselves. Yes, definitely. So before we sign off, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience of uh, EHS professionals? You know, I think it's just the idea that, that as professionals, we need to step back and take a look at ourselves. Uh, and I've, I've taught this in a lot of classes and had a lot of conversations with people about it. We have to be ready to acknowledge that we may be part of the problem. Now, we also are part of the solution, but we have to be ready to acknowledge that, you know, if you've got a history with an individual and you and that individual are battling out over safety, you know, how much of it do you own? Mm. When are, are, you know, are you going to be ready to say, you know what, I don't like that guy that much, and I bet he probably knows that, and that might have an impact on how I can get him to be safe. And so, you know, you've got to be ready to humble yourself and go, you know what, we need to bury the history because I really don't want you to get hurt. And, you right. know, so it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've posed this to a lot of professionals and, and the looks on their face when they're like, oh, yeah, that, that might be me. And, and it's, right. it's really tough and it's, it's, not, a, it's not a fun moment. Right. But we've, got, we've got to look at whether or not our behaviors are actually helping to dictate any sort of negative relationships with safety mm. with the people that we're trying to protect. Mm. And, and, and if you're ready to make that difference, you've got to be honest and authentic about it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had people in classrooms where they're going, oh my gosh, I'm that guy everybody hates. I just realized it. <laughs> you know, before he walked in the door, he thought he was awesome. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of a jerk out there. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, and I don't think everybody's like that, but I think, I think we all have opportunities to improve what we do and how we interact with people. And I think that's what's really, really critical is we just have to reflect and go, am I being the best advocate for the people that I work with? And, and yeah, we gotta consider, I'm busy and my boss wants me to get this done and I've got these deadlines and these silly reports for the government and whatever it may be, those aren't gonna change. But right. what you can change is how you can be the best you, the best leader, so that the people you're trying to protect and save are gonna to respond to you because you're showing that empathy and that humanity and they believe you. That's great, that's really good advice. Well. We're really looking forward to your talks at Safety Summit 2019. Um, 
thank you again, Regina, for joining us today on EHS on Tap. Absolutely, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. If you want to learn more from Regina and other renowned experts in the safety field, be sure that you register for the 2019 Safety Summit taking place next month, April 8th through 10th, in Austin, Texas. You'll want to save your seat as soon as possible, so for more details, visit live.blr.com, or you can click on the links and banners for the event that appear on this episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. Now, as always, be sure to keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap. <music>